This is MacabreCast Raw Cuts. Unscripted, unedited, and maybe just a little unsober. Hey all you horror fiends, it's Phil, Macabre Brothers Original, still rolling on with American Horror Story 1984, and I'm up to episode four. And I'm gonna call this the Revelation episode. You'll see why as we get along with it. But uh, before we get to it, I gotta say a, a little history lesson from Macabre Bros. We actually started as a website um, where we had some reviews and some other things, but most importantly, we had a whole bunch of drinking games to horror movies. Basically anything that is horror, you can make a drinking game to. Uh, there's some basic rules, like one drink for every death, one drink for general nudity, one drink for every sex scene, one drink for every jump scare. And then as we were writing these uh, horror movie drinking games, we would always come up with you know some rules specific to the movie that would kind of, you know, like, um, like references to little character bits or pieces of dialogue or other just ridiculous horror moments that make you remember the movie more than anything else. And as I was going through American Horror Story, I was thinking, yeah, there's probably some good slasher beats in here, good for a uh, drinking game. Well, I'm ready to start episode four when none other than our long-lost bro, Johnson, gives me a text and says, dude, I've been watching Fear Street, 1994 and 1978. Some of the best slashers I've seen in a long time and perfect for drinking games. All right, game on, Johnson. Here's the challenge. Make yourself a drinking game to any of those ones. 94, 78, any of the Fear Streets, all three of them. And I'll make myself a drinking game to episode four. Yeah, just wrapped up with it. And I think, um, yeah, it's not perfect for a drinking game, but it's still got some fun beats. And uh, we'll, we'll see if you can follow along with, the, um, with the, the plot as it gets twisty, turny, and we find out who's working with who and who wants who dead and who's actually going to be able to make it happen in this episode. And so I came up with uh, 15 rules in a runtime of 42 minutes. So if you've ever done a power hour, this is a little bit less than a power hour. It's more like, uh, you know, one drink every three minutes for 42 minutes. Um, you might be ending up drinking more than you think if you're a little too oh, sure of yourself as you go through this show. So episode four, starting it off. Johnson, here's my drinking game. I hope next time I see you, we start with drinking game to Fear Street and then roll right into uh, an episode of American Horror Story. And that'll be the thing that gets you to watch this season, because trust me, you're going to want to watch this one, too. Starting off with um, Night Stalker in Montana. Night Stalker shows up in Montana's fitness class. And what do they do? They have a little meat anti-cute. <laughs> yeah. So first drink, one drink for everyone. When Night Stalker says Billy Idol's the truth, man. Sometimes he is so fucking emo, but um, well... You'll find out why soon. And then we'll get one drink for the guys when Rudy, good old feathered hair Rudy, comes up and says, Montana, what's with this metal shit? I'm trying to get shredded as she's playing Billy Idol. Yeah, and then she cranks it up. And we know why she cranks it up because uh, Night Stalker also says, Bubblegum Barbie, she's into blades. That's one drink for all you girls because, yes, Montana, she's a hard bitch. And then take one drink soon enough when we enter the locker room. And where is um, Rudy? Well, he's hanging from the fucking rafters with his guts splayed out. And Montana kind of likes it. Who did it? Yeah, I mean, you can guess. Now we move on to uh, back to the camp. We just had a flashback with Montana and Night Stalker meeting each other. We end up back at camp and we learn that Sam, a.k.a. Montana's brother, is the guy who got shot dead by Brooke's crazy jealous fiance. Back in episode one. So everybody take one drink and then take another drink if you laugh at Montana's line. He was Billy Idol cool, but he had a heart of gold. 
<laughs> Apparently Billy Idol was like the fucking heartthrob of the decade for a bunch of uh, proto-goth punk kids. I don't know. Billy Idol, he's all right, but uh, he was a little too soft, a little too popped for me. And yeah, all those drinks come before the credits. Roll the credits. And again, we're back in camp, and uh, I want you all to learn that um, uh, Chet, a.k.a. Gus Kenworthy, yeah, he had the punty stick through the uh, shoulder. He now has to rely on two dudes named Xavier and Trent to clean his wounds, keep him alive, and what happens? It works, because we learn that Trevor, he's a little more useful than just being a big dick motherfucker. He's actually got talents. When he sees a needle full of epinephrine, yet he, he knows that it might help him out. Oh, and did I mention one drink for every jump scare? Yeah, but it's only if you actually jump. So if you jump during that scene where uh, Chet gets brought back to life, yep, take a drink. Now we move on, new scene. One drink when we have the collision of the old school counselor. So we got uh, sassy lunch lady Birdie has a history with Benjamin, with AKA Mr. Jingles. Yeah, she remembers him from when he was a custodian way back in the day. Take one drink. When you just feel the tension oozing out of that room. Oh, and of course, it might also be fun to uh, bet whether or not Birdie's going to die, Mr. Jingles is going to die, or Xavier's going to die. Now, based on precedent, though, here's a little note. We don't drink until a character's legitimately dead. So, like, you see a throat slashed open or a head lobbed off or one of those other, yeah, he's motherfucking dead sort of moments. Impaled chest, flames and blisters, all that. So, I know that sometimes things can look like somebody dies and it looks dire for Xavier at one point, but hold your horses. You might end up drinking more than you want. Moving on now, back into the woods, away from Birdie, Xavier, and Mr. Jingles, and take one drink when we figure out who dug the punji stick pit. You'll remember that I was poking holes in the plot Wondering how Mr. Jingles had enough time to dig a punji stick pit when he's been mostly locked up for the past, oh, you know, 30 years. Well, we learn right now who it is. And she says, I need to study the apex predator in the wild. Ooh, things just get so much more twisty with our character who dug the punji stick pit. I want you to find that one out on your own and take a drink for it. And then one drink when Xavier's face haunts him more than Birdie's assisted suicide. Oops, just gave it up. Xavier's alive. Birdie might be dead. Take a drink. All right, now I got a drink for the guys again. Take one drink, all you guys out there. When we learn that the two killers, the blunt tools that have been used to the whims of women here, throw down with each other. Yeah, Night Stalker and Mr. Jingles throw down. Oh, and then I got another drink for you ladies because not only do we get the dudes thrown down, the girls fight. So one drink for the ladies when, when two strong ladies are maniac masterminds throw down. And I would say that, you know, as I was watching this episode, it's about at this point that I realized Mr. Jingles, he hasn't been killing indiscriminately. He is not a typical Jason Voorhees or even uh, your Mike Myers who just kills indiscriminately. No, 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 no. He's only killed those who wronged him. Interesting little twist right there. And then, of course, take a drink when our boy Benji, we learn more about his troubled storied awful past at the insane asylum he gets lobotomized and traumatized and now is when things start getting real twisty mr jingles you know like they did in some of the other seasons you know i'm thinking specifically a freak show when we felt bad for the clown the maniac clown murderer yeah now we're starting to feel bad for mr jingles because we learn who 
truly slayed the camp counselors back in 1970. And I want you to get out a bottle of the hard stuff for this one. Yeah, because it is a well-played reveal. I'm not going to give it up here, but I want you to take one shot of the hard stuff and chase it back with a drink of beer when we find out who truly killed everybody back in 1970. And, um, I think at this point, I also realized that Mr. Jingles is kind of a like legitimately coherent metaphor for military veterans, if you want to take that sort of reading. And I personally, I do, because, you know, it resonates emotionally and truthfully based on what I know of veterans, you know, that he was he was told many times that he had been traumatized and that this was the way he was and that he was made to be a killer. Well, at this moment, that metaphor kind of, uh, you know, comes full circle and uh, i would love to hear your thoughts on it if you can still think coherently after now oh, we've only finished like one beer and had one shot so i think you can manage it as things keep getting twisty and turny and twisty and turny i want you to take one drink if you like me wondered if xavier is still alive because he's a virgin it goes back to that whole mr jingles only kills people who have wronged him thing and then also the good old trope of virgins tend to survive yeah i wouldn't be surprised if xavier um has never gotten past second base. He's a little too into himself. He probably spends lots and lots of time at first base at home alone. But when it comes to uh, actually getting down with the ladies or the guys, whatever his flavor is, I can't tell. Nah, I don't think he's been there. And then finally, to wrap things up, as we are getting to the very, very end of episode four, I want you to finish your beer. (laughs) When we realize that the Night Stalker lives. Ooh, it's a good reveal. It's a good way to end this episode. So much fun. And I, I can't wait to see where it goes from here because we are getting ghost story piled on top of slasher film, piled on top of some fun metaphor for uh, the treatment of military veterans, plus all the death and destruction and horror of what's going on at Camp Redwood at the hands of people we did not expect. Oh, man. And, and I'm wondering if, you know, somewhere in there, there's also a sneaky little metaphor about the clash between psychology mm-hmm. and the unexplainable. And I'm using uh, Nurse Rita as my, well, my stand-in for psychological and scientific thought because, well, she's a psychologist. And I'm using Night Stalker as my stand-in for the unexplainable. And the only reason I'm saying there could be a fun metaphor for that in these first four episodes is because, well, Nurse Rita witnesses Night Stalker do something that she cannot explain. She's also seen some things in her past that she cannot explain. And we can see that she's kind of shaken to the core by all that she's seen here at Camp Redwood. She thought she had a handle on it. She thought that she was seeing the apex predator in his natural environment, and she would be able to control this little experiment, this little, well, (laughs) release the mass murderer on the uh, poor hapless counselors theory that she had no and she can't i can't wait to see where it goes in uh, episode five still keeping my attention still throwing all those twists and turns at me and none of them have been too far out of left field yet some of these fun metaphors i'm getting at the same time you know for our treatment of military veterans and also psychology versus the unexplainable you know it speaks to that uh, primal power of horror movies you know that we've seen this message or point before. Maybe we have. Maybe we've, uh, you know, always um, known that science can't explain away the unexplainable. And here in American Horror Story, it's presented well enough that, you know, it kind of hits to those universal societal truths. And by now in episode four, we are getting right up to what I would imagine is the climax, the um, 
Well, the moment that all this stuff comes to head and it's getting pretty late in the night, I wonder if we're going to end up in the daytime sometime soon. Yeah, we'll see. Episode four, Phil, loving it. Still rolling on American Horror Story. Keep it going. Hope you enjoyed the drinking game. So one final thought, bear with me, about the series so far. You know, after four episodes, we're almost to the climax of this first part of the season. Then I imagine we'll have, you know, that, that whole second part tacked on the days after the tragedy. And I think we'll learn that um, nostalgia is so appealing to people because it always reminds you of a simpler time. You know, we think of 80s nostalgia as all the, the cheesy outfits and the music and the fitness classes and the puffy hair. And yeah, sure, it's a different kind of nostalgia. It's not the nostalgia of the 20s, flappers and swing dancing. And it's not the nostalgia of the 40s and 50s, you know, the atomic fears. But also post-World War II and, you know, the, the, the consumerism, the triumph of America and the two kids, mom and dad, and white picket fence, and a dog. Well, now, American Horror Story, bear with me, is a new kind of nostalgia. It's the uh, nostalgia that I think our generation is trending towards right now, the things that we'll look back on as maybe a similar time when uh, that nostalgia that, um, in the end, movies like Friday the 13th, they didn't say much more than, you know, being fun plot devices. They didn't have too much thought to their heads other than being pure entertainment. And, uh, you know, the nostalgia of the 80s seems a lot simpler because it was just pure entertainment. We shied away, in slashers at least, from some of those deeper things. But American Horror Stories taking that nostalgia and putting a uh, 2010s twist on it. Where the nostalgia, it has to say something. You know, it's maybe a little more nuanced. You know, a killer isn't just killing to kill. We have many multiple killers at play. We have many multiple motives at play. And things are a little less black and white. So it'll be interesting 30 years from now when this uh, you know, amount of self-reflection and this amount of truth-telling hits us maybe not as hard as what's hitting us in the future. We'll see. But that's what I love about nostalgia. Nostalgia always, no matter what era it's from, reminds us of a simpler time, no matter what that simpler time was. And that's why I love American Horror Story. It does a good job of taking that nostalgia and for better and for worse, reminds us that uh, our nostalgia, it's, it's growing, it's changing, it's evolving. But a couple years from now, a couple decades, it might seem simple. <laughs>